I want to start by showing you a picture. You can actually turn and see it on the screen right behind us here. You see that girl? What is she doing? What is she doing? Yeah, Jacob? She's looking at TV. Do you think she's just kind of glancing at it? Or do you think she's staring at it? What do you think? Staring. Do you, do you ever have a time when you are watching TV and you're really watching it? And your mom comes into the room or your dad comes in and they say something. But you kind of hear this, kind of like a Charlie Brown show. You hear this in the background, but you don't really hear it because you're watching TV. Do you ever have that happen? Ever had that happen? Yeah, somebody wants to admit it, but not everybody. Tell me this. How many of your, do you have, did your mom or your dad or somebody in your home, do they get really into the TV? Maybe it's football. Maybe it's a particular show. And they are watching. Yeah? Yeah, and they are just watching, and maybe somebody else comes into the room, maybe if it's, if it, if it's your dad in football, maybe it's your mom, or will you come in, or whatever, and you say something, they're like, oh, yeah, uh, and they don't even hear you. Have you, have you experienced, can somebody tell me a story like that? Yeah, yes, right there, you, you've got a story to tell. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jacob? The Fiesta Bowl. Was anybody important in the Fiesta Bowl? I don't know why she'd be even watching the Fiesta No. I, and yet she was, she was in it, huh? She was in that game. All right. The secret's out. And, 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 you, and you may need something. I mean, the house could be on fire, right? No, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. Well, it's, it's almost like when the TV has got you. When the TV's got her, it's almost like nobody else is even there. It's just unplug it. Well, now we're getting into solutions. There's, that's called, it's called distraction. Now, just because football's on, does that mean that nobody else is in the room? Uh, the other people are still in the room, but you wouldn't know it. I find I have, I, I was watching the game the other night, and, and middle of the game, my, my sweet and lovely wife is telling me something, and, and, and now and again, she'll catch me at this, and I, and, and I realize she's told me something, and I haven't got a clue what she told me. But she's in the room, she's present, but I don't know that she's present, okay? It's because my mind is so focused on something else. It can be that way with God. We know that God is present, we know that God is, in fact, right here. God's in this room, and on Sunday morning, we think about it. On Sunday morning, God is on our minds, right? We sing praises, we, we, we read the Bible, we, we hear from God. Sunday morning, God's on our mind. In Sunday school, we hear about Him. But Sunday afternoon, Monday, maybe in the middle of the week, there's something else going on, and it's easy to just be caught up in what else is happening. Does that mean God is no longer there? No, but our awareness of his presence. I want to talk of this morning about the presence of God. God is always present. God is always near. But we don't always realize it. Life is like that TV. Just all kinds of stuff grabs us and takes our eyes, our mind, our heart off 
of God. So I want to talk this morning about some ways that we can unplug the TV. I want to talk about some ways that we can, in the midst of all kinds of distractions, we can still live in aware of God's very real presence with us. It's an abstract and difficult topic, but just like the TV doesn't take everybody else out of the room, our distractions don't remove God, and we need to find a way to, in the midst of all these distractions, keep our eyes on God so that we're not in the presence of the TV, we're in the presence of God. All right? I'm going to talk about that this morning. I'm going to talk about God's presence and how you can practice God's presence, okay? So go go, go on, sit back down, and we're going to talk about the presence of God. Something that we're made for. It's something that we long for. It's something that we hunger for. Now, uh, somewhat related, I was, I was um, helping a little bit, while well, I was here anyway, while they were de-decorating, undecorating from Christmas. And uh, somebody was rearranging then flowers and plants and things, and I, w- I suggested, what if instead of the flowers, we just had branches? You know, we did the January look. We just had empty, they wouldn't necessarily be dead branches, but they would be empty branches. They would be bare branches because that's January, isn't it? And more than we like to admit it, that's life. Life is like January, especially in January, especially after the buildup and the busyness of the holidays leading to Christmas and all the pageantry and the celebration. And God himself and his son came and visited and dwelt among us. He moved into our neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson says. And it's like, wow. And then it's January. And the tree's gone. And the bill's Come. That's why we have Financial Peace University in January, right? You're ready for it. (laughs) But sometimes January has that barren feeling to it, and in the midst of it, we were in Southern California um, from Christmas Day up until January 3rd. And on January 3rd was our last day, and we left that evening. We flew out and watched the sunset. January 3rd, it was about 70 degrees, and it was beautiful sunshine. Julie and I went to In-N-Out one last time, and we sat out and had our hamburgers right out there in the beautiful sun, and then we came back here. And all of a sudden, it felt like January. Life is like that. It, it feels barren at times. That song, 10,000 Reasons, expresses that. It expresses that cry of our heart that, that, that you find in Psalm 42. You can put that up on the screen. Psalm 42. As the deer pants, longs, thirsts after the streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The real God, the alive and active and engaged and present God. Not the distant God, not a God to know about, but to not know in and with. Where can I go and meet with God? Where can I find God's presence? That's the question. You long for it. You hunger for it. 
And yet God's presence is not out of reach. God's presence is near, as as Paul says in Acts chapter 17, that it, it is in God we live and move and have our being. He is not far from any one of us. But our awareness of, our participation in the presence of God is what I want to talk about this morning. As, as the outline in your bulletin shows, it's, it's all about the presence. The Christian life is about living in the presence, the restored presence of God. Now, that is not a picture of a big TV, okay? I'm not sure what it's a picture of, actually, but it was intriguing to me. I hope it will be to you. We often think of standing in awe of the presence of the true and the living God. And to have that awe, that sense, that awareness of his presence leak out and overflow into the daily stuff of life, the January of life. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Let me give you an overview of what I want to do so you don't get overwhelmed by what you see in your notes in front of you. I want to talk briefly about presence lost and found. This, this idea of living in and participating in God's presence, which is normal for humanity as God made us and yet is not our experience, what went wrong and what is God's intention. I want to talk about how we taste of that presence today, talk about that a little bit, what is, what is normal for the presence of God in our lives today, and I want to talk most specifically, spend our time this morning on how do we practice, how can we actually practice, how can we live in the presence, all right? So this, this, I think, is essential for us as a church. There's a couple of key verses. I'm, I'm going to refer to several verses, and we won't even turn to them. I've given you the references in your notes so you can go back and look later if you're intrigued by Now, where was that passage? As you, as you, as you cycle through the notes that are in your bulletin, you'll, you'll find it again because I want, I want us to spend time on a couple of passages in particular. But in this, what I want you to, to see is is that we can, in fact, we should, the norm of the Christian life is to live in the aware presence of God. Easily we are like me in front of a football game. And God is in the room, but I'm not aware of it. I don't know it. I miss it with the stuff of life, the tasks at hand, the busyness, the pressures, the good news or the bad that I am fixated with that blocks out my awareness of the presence of God himself that I am in the midst of. And I want us to, what can I do to, as one of the young, young guys said, how do I unplug the TV? How do I unlock my gaze from these things all around in ways that I see them through the reality of God's presence? Presence lost and found. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8 is the, is, is the verse where God is walking in the garden after Adam and Eve have taken of the fruit, that forbidden fruit from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to know evil too, and now they do. And, and God is walking through the garden as he did before when, when they were in relationship together. And God is calling out, Adam, Adam, where are you? You see, the, the separation that's to come when they're going to be expelled from the garden, that is not just, a, um, um, just some random decision that God made. That judgment is simply declaring and clarifying what has already happened. There's already been a separation of 
humanity, Adam and Eve, from God's presence. That's why they're hiding, and that's why he says, where are you? A separation from his presence, the presence lost. You you see this pattern continuing. God establishes a, a, a nation. He establishes a worship. He establishes a tabernacle, and there's that Ark of the Covenant within that tabernacle, and that Ark of the Covenant within that tabernacle as the people journey through the wilderness and into the land, that center of the nation's worship is centered around the very presence of God in their midst. Remember in the Exodus, he leads them out. He goes with them in a pillar of, of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the very presence of the glory God is right there with them. And it's centered there in that Ark of the Covenant, in that golden box. And yet there comes a day when the box is stolen by the Philistines, by God, the enemies of God's people. It had lost its power. They had centered everything around an object instead of the God of the presence. In their habits and in their rituals. And it came a time when the word Ichabod, the glory is departed, was written over the nation. It wasn't about religion. It wasn't about a box. It wasn't about an object. It wasn't about any particular practice. The issue at stake was the presence of God himself. And that's what they had lost sight of. You see it again later on in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet. There you have the temple. Solomon's temple has been built, and, and the glory of God dwelt in that temple, and the people worshipped around that temple, and yet over time they begin to worship the religion in the temple more than the God of the temple, more than the presence of God in their midst. And there was a time when the glory of God departed. And Ezekiel, in a couple of chapters, about chapter 8 to 11, the book of Ezekiel describes that departure of God the departure of the presence from the temple. It's fascinating that that presence of God, the very Shekinah glory of God, lifts up from the holy place, goes over to the threshold, the door, the big main gate to the temple, the main entrance. It goes from there to the eastern gate, the main entrance to the city, and it goes from there, the glory of God departs across the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, lingers there, and departs. I find that interesting because many years later, the glory of God would return in the person of the Son. The Word was with God and was God. The Word who was God became flesh and dwelt among us. As Eugene Peterson says, he moved into our neighborhood. God, the very presence of God in humanity with us. And what does he do when he comes to Jerusalem on that fateful day? That what we call the triumphal entry, he comes to the Mount of Olives. He comes down the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem. He comes across that Kidron Valley. He comes in the Eastern Gate. He comes to the temple on his way weeping, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, if you had only known this, the day of your visitation the day that God was coming near, the day when the very presence of God would be in your midst. Remember, that's the day he comes into the temple and he finds things very much as as they were when the presence of God had left the temple so long ago. The the presence of God has come back and the the people of the temple are uninterested. And he overturns the money changers and all of that, all the corruption that is evident, all the practice of an empty religion without an awareness of the presence of God. And he departs again and he says to them, your house will be left to you 
empty, desolate, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, until you receive by faith that this one, Jesus, was the very presence of God, the one who came in the very name of God himself. And that's what you have done. That's what many of you have done. You have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your own Savior, as God himself in flesh, in humanity, the very presence of God who lived and died for our guilt, for our sin. And you said, that's who I trust in. That's who I believe. That's my Savior, God in humanity, who died for me and rose again. And you have said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the presence has returned. The spirit of the living God himself is not only, Jesus says in John 14, with you, but will be in you. That restoration of the glory of God that that God anticipates in eternity, we have a foretaste of it today. Into eternity, Revelation 21, Galatians chapter 3, what happens? Or not Galatians, Genesis 3, what happens? The separation of God in humanity. Cast out of his presence, so to speak. What happens over in the book of in the in the final chapter of the book of Revelations? The temple, the dwelling place of God is with man, Revelation 21 3. In fact, in Revelation 21, it says in that new dwelling place, in the place where we will live for eternity, there is no temple there. Because God and the Lamb of God will be its temple. We will be in the presence, not of a temple, but of the living God himself. That's where God is moving us to eternity. We have a foretaste of that today. Our foretaste of that today is living in light of the presence of God by the Spirit who Jesus says is with you and will be in you. The presence of God today. The presence of God lost and found, lost and to be restored, that's God's goal. But now, today, we live in the presence of God. Now, today, you could say the presence of God lives within us by the Spirit. We spent some time talking about that uh, in, 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 in the month of November and into December. The essential difference of the church, the uniqueness of what happens in a local church and an individual believer in God's church around the world today is this. The presence of the true and living God is here. Although often we're fixated on the game. Often we are tuned in to something else, something that is temporary, something that will not last, and something really that won't change our long-term life much at all. But we're fixated for the moment on that something else. And we easily miss the voice of God himself at our ear, telling us, inviting us, perhaps commanding us, and yet we don't quite hear. And you do that same double take I will do with my own family. Now, what was that again? It seemed like you were saying something. It's like they weren't even in the room. And that's where we will be today. The the essential difference of the church, 1 Timothy 3.15, one of my favorite passages. This is a compelling passage for me. This describes to me, and as I talk about it in this next year, what's most important for Brush Prairie? What's most important for this church? What do we need more than anything else is not any program. 
is not any strategy, is not any method, practice, or skill. What we need more than anything else is the experience, life by life, of the presence of God himself. But as Paul says, this is not far from you. The living God is in our midst. It is in him that we live and move and have our being. And if that's true for Hermione in general, how much more is it true of the redeemed of whom he says, you individually are the temple of the living God. You are not your own, 1 Corinthians 6 says. You have been bought with the price. The spirit of the living God dwells in you. Be careful how, what you do and how you use and where you take your temple because the spirit of the living God himself dwells within you. Not only you individually. It's not about me individually. It's about a local church. Paul says be careful. Be careful about a local church. You know, our society has a tendency to take any local church. I'm not talking about this one in particular now. But any local church, we have easily bought into a consumer mindset that church is another place we go for something we need. Church is like many other service providers that we go to. Here we go to a church. We go to a place that, that dispenses spiritual goods and services. But, but God says, no, no, my church is not a mall. My church is the temple of the living God. That God himself dwells in this thing he calls the body of Christ, a local assembly. And so he makes us then members one of another, interdependent and interaccountable one to another. As each member of the body is necessary for the body as a whole to function, to be, to stand in the image and glory of God. Such it is with a local church. That a local church is his temple. A local church is the place where the presence of God dwells. The way David Fisher writes it, the early Christians were convinced that the risen and glorified Christ was present with them. For them, that presence was and is the essence of the church. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. I am in your midst. It's not the building. It's not the location. It's not the address. It's not the pew. It's the joining together of those who are redeemed, those who are born again by the Spirit, through faith, in Christ, gathered together that are the presence of God himself. And if we are the presence, that's a presence that ought to be experienced. It's a presence that ought to be ought to be. Um, practice, ought to be lived in, ought to be known and perceived and even, dare I say it, among a conservative church, felt emotionally, vibrantly. We are the presence of the living God himself. This phrase, out of these three phrases out of 1 Timothy 3.15, they describe the church, three essentials of the church, I'm convinced. The church is family. The church has been made God's household, God's family. I'm not going to spend time on that phrase this morning. The church is the church, the assembly, the called out gathering in of the true and the living God. When Paul uses that phrase, living God, he's, he's contrasting the God to all those supposed gods. What else that people worship? What else that people honor and esteem? The false gods, even demonically empowered gods, but are not any gods at all in comparison to the one true God who made everything and everyone. 
and is the one in whom we all exist. The one who made all things by the word of his power. The one who upholds all things by his own word. The one who upholds our life's breath by his own command. That's our God. That is the God. And we are the called out assembly of the living God. Think of it in terms of the real and alive and active and engaged God. The God who comes into our living room and the God who grabs hold of our arm and shakes us free from that thing that distracts us and says, I am. And shows us something far better shows us someone far more glorious than that which had distracted us. The family of God, we are together like an extended family unit. We are together on a mission together, the family business of the gospel of Christ. As the church of the living God, and because he's the living God, the transforming, the changing me, changing you, God, He makes us into what he calls the pillar and supporter of the truth. This is a proclamational pillar. I don't want to get into this image too far either. But it was a pillar that had itself been carved and marked in with the story that it told. A pillar that wasn't just decorative. It wasn't just, oh, that's a nice piece of marble there. Look at that marble. But a message, a story, sometimes even a picture graph of a particular event that was commemorated. Those were carved into this pillar, much like you have a a series of pictures of events carved into the, the Astoria column. The column itself has been transformed in order to tell a story. Otherwise, it would just be a column. Over time, people easily forget the story. It's just that's a very nice column. We are to be a proclamational pillar. We are to be a pillar that has been transformed itself so that we better tell, not because we know the story, but because the story has changed us. The story has marked us. The story has been carved us in ways that our lives tell the story of the risen Christ. I see something of Christ in you. The Sanhedrin looked at the disciples and they, and they looked at them. They knew them to be ignorant fishermen and yet they realized that these men had been with Jesus. There was something about him upon them by the spirit of the living God. And such it is with us. Everywhere you go, you smell funny. You look peculiar. There's something about you that strikes people as different, although they can't put their finger on it. There's a presence about you because you have been with him. There's a presence about you because you have been in his presence. But I said his presence is all around. His presence is all the time. What does it mean then to be in particular in his presence? What is it that his actual living presence marks me? changes you. What does that take? What does it look like? How do we practice his presence? That's what I wanted to get to. That's what I wanted to talk about. If we indeed have the presence of God, if Jesus in fact said, I will never, his last words of the, of the gospel of Matthew, giving the great commission, giving the charge, and he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you presence. Why do we sometimes feel so alone? Why do we sometimes feel so much like January 
empty, lifeless. No leaves left hanging on the branches. Certainly no fruit. Oh, but in January, there is fruit to come. You can't necessarily see it yet, but there is the promise because there is life that will spring up. It wouldn't have been true if we'd cut off branches and stuck them up here. But among the fruit tree behind us, there will be apples this, this fall. You'll see the blossoms this spring. There will even be the promise because there is life in the thing. And that life we actually have a foretaste of. First John chapter 1, verse 3 invites us into fellowship, invites us into relationship with God and with his son. John says, I write these things to you, I tell you about this because I want your joy to be full. I want you to have fellowship right along with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship, we have relationship together. We live in and we experience his presence we taste of it already. It's, it's like tasting of what eternity will be like. Sometimes we have a weird view of eternity, which leaks over into a weird perspective of God today. We think about eternity. We're somewhere in heaven. There's clouds. There might be a harp. I'm not sure. You know, our, our life in eternity will be a whole lot more like life on earth except the fullness of God's presence, unhindered relationship restored with the God who made us and made us to be his regents, his ambassadors, his representatives on the earth. How do I practice that? How do I get there from here? I, I, I said I wanted, to, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to spend most of my time this morning on practicing the presence of God. So that's what I want to move to, practicing God's presence and and. I've actually included my cell phone here. I want this to be a little, a little interactive. I want to be able to come back with um, this is what strikes you in terms of the practice of the presence of God. How do you live in the presence of God? I'd invite you. I turned my cell phone off. It won't ring. Don't worry. But I would like you along the way here, if something strikes you, send me a very brief text because I'm a slow reader. But send me a very brief text about a way that you practice or will practice the presence of God. If something here strikes you as practical, doable, livable, step in a ball, then I invite you to do that. Use that number. It'll be there for the next several slides as we go. But practicing his presence, one of the ways that you'll step into this in the new year, one of the ways that his presence will then be leaking out of you will be in prayer. Prayer is simply the acknowledgement of the presence of God. When I pray, I acknowledge that God is present. I am not shouting all the way off to heaven somewhere. I can speak quietly even in my own heart, and I know my God is near. I know my God hears. Prayer, when it is sincere, when it is not just a form, prayer is the acknowledgement of the presence of God. It is the one practice of presence that precedes all others. The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean I do nothing else but pray. It means that all through the day I pray. It's that without ceasing is like a cough that doesn't quit. It, you cough, <coughs> and you continue on, and you talk, and yet that nagging cough is still there. It tickles your throat again, and... <coughs> And it keeps going, but you continue on with the conversation. You continue on with the task at hands, but all through the day, <coughs> 
I have a group of pastors that I get together with. And we have a goal together. And it's not like if we do this, we will be righteous because we do this and we're still not righteous. But we have a goal together that we want to spend an hour of our day in prayer. We want to pray for an hour a day. Now, that's okay. I've got 24 hours in the day. An hour is... Try to block out an hour of time every day for prayer. See how that goes. I, I found personally that goal is not only difficult, it's discouraging. I get towards the end of the day, and I haven't spent much of that hour yet at all, and I know I'm not going to get there. If I go and do it now, it's just going to be fill in the square, so I'm not interested in that. And so day after day, I don't have my hour in prayer. It's supposed to be a sweet hour of prayer, but it doesn't happen. One of our, our um, cohort along the way came up with a plan that worked for him it's worked for me. I'll share it with you. He set the chime on his watch. Now, if you do this, you should put, take your watch out of your bedroom at night because that can be a nuisance, okay? But every hour, the chime goes off. And when the chime goes off, and phones do this too, I understand, when the chime goes off, he stops then and he prays about the things that he finds himself in. That's praying without ceasing. Or maybe better than that even, you get to the point that along the day, all through the day, you find yourself 15 seconds here, a minute there, two minutes here, five minutes there. When the prayer request comes through in your email, you don't, yeah, I'm going to pray for that when I'm praying later. No, that's a time to pray. When you're having a conversation with somebody after the service has ended, you're talking together how things are going. Well, they're going pretty good. You know, we had a great time. For, but, but when our family was together and there was this, and, and there's a burden that leaks out in that, in that time together. It's, it's like a bubble is sent up. And what are you going to do with that? Are you going to respond to that? Can you? I'll pray for you sometime, maybe, but probably not. But at least you're, you feel warm and fuzzy that I said I would. Why not stop right there in the midst of that conversation? Let's pray. To pray without ceasing is to pray in the midst, to pray right now, to, to practice God's presence all through the day. I found, I found it much easier to pray together, to pray with others. It helps me to pray. It helps me to join in them with your prayer. You may have been given a spouse. You may have been given a spouse that you can pray for. You may have good friends, brothers and sisters of Christ, those that you can pray for and pray with. Praying not to each other. You know how we do that? Do you have family devotions? And the kids, oh, would you help my sister? To, God, would you help her to be nicer and to share her toys more? What's going on there? I'm trying to get my sister to share her toys, and if she's not listening to God, maybe she'll at least listen to me as I'm sort of talking to her, but as if I'm praying to God. We easily do that. In marriage, do you do that? Oh, Lord, and please help my wife with her bad attitude. You know, please help her to be sweeter and kinder, and you know by this time I'm not talking about Julie. But do we pray for one another in weird ways? Are we praying to God, or are we praying at one another, maybe is a way to put it? Get past that, and genuinely, you pray about yourself opening your heart before another person in ways that may help you open your heart to God. 
How about practice priority? That was another one I had on my list. Practicing priority, sacrifice, giving, even fasting. Now, we've just come through Christmas and giving and the whole exchange thing. And now the opportunity in the new year is for you to give without the exchange thing. And you see a need, and you're going to give to it. You know, we, we, we gave as a church to a missionary family in need, providing the appliances for their house. We found out it was almost the exact amount that they needed. And we collected gift cards for that missionary family's, uh, family's children as well. And you provided back in twice as many gift cards as we had requested, as we had hung notices on the tree for. It's fun to give, and I will give up in order to be able to give for something else. That, that self-denial, which is essential. Though the practice of fasting has fallen out of fashion. We live in a prosperous age. Who would fast unless it's because I'm trying to lose weight? And yet, denial for self-denial's sake. To simply to deprive and to be in need, to be hungry for a time is a good thing. It reminds my soul that it is not all about me. And the hunger that is in my body reminds my soul of its hunger for God. And when I am hungry and want to eat, I then am provoked to pray. And you know, I find a day when I'm fasting, I don't run short of that hour of prayer. I'm reminded all through the day. The self-denial that practicing of priority that God simply matters more and I'm not accomplishing anything else by fasting other than to remind myself that I'm not first. And I find it presses me into an awareness of his presence. Practicing priority, you, you do it in marriage. You do it in family. Ephesians 5 describes it that way, doesn't it? Submitting yourselves to one another. Wives submitting to your husbands, giving yourself, denying yourself, and giving yourself to him instead as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What is it? It's a model of worship. In denying myself and giving myself for my spouse, or a mother or a father for your children. As you do that, that worship, and doing it not just because it's needed, not just because the kids are squalling, not just because the attention is being demanded, but this I do. I deny myself. I give to another because, and only because, there I worship God. There I serve God. In the midst of the stuff, I deny myself. And in that denial and giving to another instead, I put that in the category of this, my God, I do for you. It presses my heart and my soul into his presence or simply the awareness of his presence. The last thing I wanted to talk about was practicing prophecy. And this is a scary one. I wanted to go back to a verse on this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 25, and it's actually in your, in your, in your notes as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 25. It's an interesting passage. It talks about what should be normal in the church. There's been this, it's this, this dialogue, this conversation in 1 Corinthians about various spiritual gifts. And especially about the gift of tongues, which is a spectacular gift. It's noticeable. People pick it up, and wow, there's something really going on there. 
And it's unexplainable, so it's supernatural, and it's exciting. And he says, this is what ought to be the most normal in the church. This is what our church needs more than anything else. Listen to it. In verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 14, if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand, uh, somebody visiting, somebody inquiring, somebody seeking, somebody curious about this whole Christianity thing, what is it that you go to church for? And they come. They come with you. They visit in on their own. And this is what they experience. They come in while everybody is prophesying. He will be convinced by all that he is a sinner, and he will be judged or discerned by all, insightfully understood by all. It's not judged in the sense of condemned, we look down on you. It's a understood. There's an insight that's below the surface. The, they knew something about my heart because of what was said. He will be convinced by all. He will be insightfully understood by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now, we expect, we ought to expect, we hunger for that kind of preaching. That kind where the book is open and the thumb of the finger of God himself is put on your chest and you can leave this place saying, I heard from God today. He spoke to me. He called me into his presence. He uncovered some of my resistance. He poked through some of the hardness that I've had and he touched me and he pointed me a way to walk. But that's not completely what this passage is talking about. What this passage is talking about is if they come in and everyone is prophesying. Oh, now it gets a little scary. I don't mean there's just, a, just it's going on all around the room, but this could happen as soon as we close the service. It often does. After we close the service and people are visiting and talking and, and conversing one to another and you're speaking words to one another, and what words are they? Are they words that matter? Or are they words about, look at these new boots I got for Christmas? Are they, how about those Seahawks? Are they going to pull it off this afternoon? See, you're getting all excited about the wrong stuff. All prophesying. What is prophecy, really? What does prophesying really mean? Prophecy is simply this. The Spirit of God speaking the mind of God through the servant of God to the people of God. Prophecy is speaking the mind of God to the matter at hand. In fact, in Old Testament prophecy, the foretelling of the future is a minor part. The big deal is the mind of God to the matter at hand. And if the Spirit of God dwell in you, Paul says, I wish that the whole church prophesied. He said, and if all of you were prophesying and people came in, they would have their heart touched impacted by what you said. As we go out to people around us, we live in the presence of God. And one of the ways we will practice that presence in which we live, one of the ways we'll practice that presence is this, what we say and the impact it has. If what we say we speak in the realization that I am not my own, I am, in fact, the angel Gabriel. Maybe in the Christmas story this year, you read this phrase, but you missed it. 
Gabriel stands there in Luke chapter 1, verse 19. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And he has sent me to bring you this good news. Folks, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. God has sent me to tell people his good news. You, you are Gabriel. You stand in the presence of God himself. And he has sent you. You he has sent to tell others his good news. That's not something merely for that angel. That's for us. That's practicing the presence of God in prophetically speaking his good news that the world around us would hear it. Our time is gone. We've more to do. Because one of the ways that we practice the presence of God is right here at this table, not because it's a ritual. Not because this is an empty thing like that Ark of the Tabernacle that can be carried on while the glory of God has long since departed. No. This is a presence of God only as much as what it is to you. If we come to this table aware that this is the body of Christ that was given in his very human and real death in our place for our broken humanity, our sin. And so when I participate in that, I'm not going through a religious motion. I am confessing my agreement that his body was given, his humanity for me. When I drink this cup, if you drink this cup, not as something we do in church, but you take this cup and you drink it in acknowledgement that this is the very blood of Christ that was shed in my place in his death for me for the forgiveness of my sins. This becomes a participation together in the very presence of the living and dying and risen Savior that you share with those around you, sitting next to you. As the worship team comes back up front, as those who are serving come forward now, I invite you to not enter this table lightly. In fact, we'll, we'll play a, a line or two of music before we begin singing, once we start passing the trays from one to another. We'll pass the bread and the cup together. And as we do that, as you pass it one person to the next, I want us to start reflectively. I want us to consider ourselves, do I really believe that in joining this table, I'm affirming again, I'm declaring together, I'm telling my own heart, he gave his life for me. He shed his blood for my forgiveness. And I don't know where you've been or what guilt presses upon your heart, but if you believe that, his blood is for your forgiveness, not your condemnation. His blood is to set you free into his promise of eternal life. And we step into that day by day. And this table simply reminds us of that presence of a living, loving, and forgiving Savior. So go ahead, spend that time, those few seconds even in prayer, telling him that you'll rest there 
his death, his grace for you. And in that spirit, then receive these elements, hold them, and we'll partake of them together.